delighted that you're here. We have a good number present again this evening. We appreciate the presence of everyone. I encourage you to get a Bible if you don't already have one with you. Perhaps there's one in the pew, and we're going to be looking at the book of Ezekiel. And so find your Old Testament if you have one close by, and let's go to the book of Ezekiel. We're continuing studies as we have uh, periodically making our way through some of the major prophets. As I'm working on some material to publish on the major prophets. So we're looking at the book of Ezekiel. We're not going to look at the entire book tonight. We're going to look at the first few chapters of that. But let's do, start with some introductory things about Ezekiel. This hopefully will not only be a understanding generally of the text. We're going to make a fast run through Ezekiel as we have Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Will with Daniel. But uh, hopefully there'll be some practical things along the way as well. Ezekiel has been called the Patmos seer of the Old Testament because he was exiled by the river Kibar in Babylonia as John was at Patmos. And so he has been given that title or that name. Because of the nature of the book of Ezekiel, it is a difficult in some sections it is an apocalyptic type of literature. Say more about that in a moment. That has caused some to skip over it and neglect it, and they don't like studying the book of Ezekiel, so they know very little about it. Others are fascinated with it and find extreme things in it. Some think they have found the prophecy of spaceships uh, in the book of Ezekiel. So we have everything from finding the fascinating spaceships there to thinking we can't even understand it at all. Let's talk a little about the prophet. We'll give a few introductory thoughts and then we'll get underway with looking at the first section. What about the prophet? What do we know about him? The name Ezekiel means God will strengthen or God strengthens and that represents his mission to the shattered nation that he talks to and that he preaches to. We'll say more about that in a moment. What do we know about his birth and his childhood? He was born about 622 BC during the reign of Josiah. Uh, we read of that in Ezekiel chapter 1. He was about 17 years old when the first invasion came. Remember, there were three invasions in 606 B.C. was the first. When Daniel was taken, then this young man, Ezekiel, was about 17 years of age. What do we know about his family? Well, he was married. He had a wife. Chapter 24 tells us that. She died as a son. And we see that beginning right after this section of Ezekiel 24, beginning at verse 19. We'll say more about that when we get to that section. Now, he was taken into captivity in the second group. The first went away in 606 B.C., but the second, uh, in the second invasion in 597 B.C., the temple is still standing. It doesn't fall to 586. And so in the second invasion of uh, Judah, he was taken. He would have been about 25 years old, according to chapter 1. This was when Jeconiah and 10,000 were taken, those thought to be the cream of the crop. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 24 tells us about that. He was both a prophet and a priest. He was called to be a prophet in 592 B.C. when he was about 30 years old. Um, and we're going to read about that in just a few moments in chapter 1. He was also a priest according to chapter 1 and in verse 3, like Jeremiah. Well, he was a contemporary with da uh, Jeremiah and Daniel. Remember, Jeremiah come at the very end of the fall, uh, right before the fall of Jerusalem. He was right during that uh, that time before Jerusalem fell, and then he went off into Egypt and was taken to Egypt, not of his own will, as you remember. 
And so Jeremiah continued in Jerusalem for a while while uh, during the three invasions while Ezekiel went with the captives. And so he was contemporary with reference to time, though they were in different places. Daniel was in the city, out in captivity, and Ezekiel comes to join much later, but he's out into the country and uh, preaching and prophesying in a different place. What do we know about his death? Nothing much except tradition tells us that he was killed by a fellow exile whose idolatry Ezekiel had condemned. And we have no way of knowing that to be the truth, but yet that is a part of tradition. What about the setting for the book? Well, it's in Babylon or Babylonia. Chapter 1 and verse 1 will tell us that. We'll come to that in just a moment. Chapter 3 and in verse 15 again gives us that he's set by the river Kibar and Tel Abib. And so he's in Babylon. He's gone off into captivity and he is taken away. And that's where this takes place. Now, what about the time? From about 592 to 570 B.C. for 22 years is where his prophecy fits. He was called to be a prophet according to Ezekiel chapter 1 and 592. He continues that until chapter 29 and verse, 20, and verse 17, which would be in 570. So that gives us the 22 years. So he began his work six years after, uh, or six years after he began his work, Jerusalem fell. So he's beginning his work as a prophet. He's gone off into captivity. He begins his work, and six years after that, Jerusalem falls in 586. That was 11 years after he went into captivity. So he'd been there for a little while, for 11 years before Jerusalem fell. Now, we'll see several times, 13 times, in fact, Ezekiel dates his work and tells us something about this was in the year so-and-so or in the third year or whatever case that he may mention, and we'll come to that a little bit later. What about the national and political circumstance? Brother Haley suggests that the period in which Ezekiel lived was one of a national and international turmoil and moral and political decay uh, in Judah. And it was moral decay, political decay. Things were deteriorating in Judah. In fact, there's already been one invasion, a second invasion, and waiting for the third, which the false prophet said would never take place. Jerusalem is still going to stand, and we'll see more about that in just a moment. Let's talk about the message of the book. What is the message? Sixty-three times he tells us, then shall they know that I am the Lord. We'll see some of those beginning in chapter 4 here in just a few moments. So God will say something that he's going to do, and then he says, then they shall they know that I'm the Lord. Then he'll say something else he's going to do, and then they shall know that I'm the Lord. Sixty-three times that is driven home. Now, what was the need for that kind of message? Remember, he's off in captivity, but he's prophesying to these, to these people who are in captivity about them and about those that are still back in Jerusalem. What does he say about them? Well, listen to J. Sidlow Baxter. He said these exiles also were permeated with the delusive idea that their captivity would soon be ended. And that Jehovah could never allow Jerusalem, his chosen city, to be ruined. There were false prophets among them, as there were at the faraway Jerusalem, who were all the while inculcating this, chapter uh, 13, where it shows us that, verse 16 and verse 19. It was certainly clear that there was a need for such a prophet as Ezekiel among the exiles. It is equally clear that the task was a very difficult one. His first task was to disabuse them of their false hope, which, which required much courage. So there was false prophets among the captives, and they're telling them, we're going to go back soon, even though Jeremiah said it'd be for 70 years. And the false prophets were saying, God would never let Jerusalem fall, and we'll see evidence of that in our study tonight. God's never going to let Jerusalem fall. Jerusalem is, is the cauldron, and, and we are protected from that. And so it's not ever going to fall. Haley makes this observation, the mission of Ezekiel was to save from complete apostasy the group in Babylon that had been carried away in 597 B.C. That's the second group. Also, he labored to prepare them against the corruptions that are left in Jerusalem, that they should be brought to Babylon. After, uh, at this point, 
One should read carefully Jeremiah 24. The good figs and the captives were taken to Babylon in 597. The bad figs were taken in 586. Out of the first group, God would find the remnant that should return to Jerusalem. It's Ezekiel's work to preserve the remnant. And that he does indeed seek to do. Now let's talk a little more about the nature of the book. It is an apocalyptic book like Daniel, Zechariah, and Revelation. What does that mean? Well, there are symbols and there are symbolic figures and there are symbolic acts. There are three different visions. One we'll see tonight in verse, chapters 1 through 3. There's another vision that goes from chapter 8 and ends in chapter 11. We'll see that tonight. And then there's a third one found in chapters 40 to 48. And so we'll talk about visions and the nature of visions and how things happen with reference to visions here in just a moment. Now let's look at a basic outline of the book and then we'll get underway making a quick run through the first 11 chapters. Three major things. I adapt this from, from Baxter and Risby. The chapters 1 through 24 deals with judgment on Jerusalem. We're going to talk about the call of the prophet, a disobedient nation. The glory departs, a disciplined nation. And then there is a Gentile nations section. We saw that in Isaiah. We saw that in Jeremiah. We'll see that with nearly every prophet. There's always a nations section, an important section. Though it seems to be a little boring at times when we read, what does he keep saying this nation and that nation and this nation? We'll talk about that when we get there. And then there's the restoration of God's people in chapters 33 to 48. So let's look at chapters 1 through 11, a quick run through that. And let's begin by talking about his call to be a prophet found in chapters 1 through 3. We're just going to hit the high points. That's all we can do. We're going to get a summary of what happens in chapters 1 through 11. Let's focus on the call of the prophet. And so he, unlike Isaiah, doesn't mention that to chapter 6. He talks about his call to be a prophet very early in his book. So let's talk about this call to be a prophet. He starts with the setting here in um, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He talks about the setting. So what does he say about the setting? Well, let's notice what the setting is in chapters one through, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We won't read all of that. Then he said, I was among the captives by the river Kibar, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. He talks about it on the fifth day of the month, and when this took place. And then he says at verse 3, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar. And the hand of the Lord is upon me there. So I was in captivity. I was taken away in captivity. And the hand of the Lord came upon me there. That's the setting, the time, and the place where all of this took place. Now in chapter 1, beginning at verse 4, here is the vision of God's glory. Now let's get ahead of ourselves to talk about the purpose of the vision. Then we go back and see the vision and you'll see that purpose coming forth. Let's get ahead of ourselves to chapter 1, verse 28. There was the appearance like the likeness of the glory of God. God's purpose in this vision is to overwhelm Ezekiel with his greatness and his power. So we see the glory and the power and the might of God. And so he wants to prepare Ezekiel for his work. And one of the ways is that he knows and is impressed with God. We're never ready to do our work until, first of all, we're impressed with God. That's one practical lesson I'm learning. And if we could quit at this point, we've learned a very practical thing. You never will be fit for the kingdom until first you're impressed with God. God wants him to be impressed with the glory and overwhelmed with his greatness and his power. So let's notice about the visions of God's glory. There were four living creatures that are mentioned here. This reminds us of Revelation chapter 4. But here are four living creatures. Beginning at verse 4, I looked and behold a whirlwind coming out of the north, a great cloud, and a raging fire engulfing itself. Now verse 5, and from, it with, uh, uh, and from within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and they had an appearance like the likeness of a man. Now he calls them cherubims in chapter 10, 
And that is, and I know he's talking about the same thing because he refers back to this and he talks about them being Jeroboam. And so that's how I know that's what they are. But each of them had four faces. Now what happens with their faces? Well, look at verse 10. They had the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. Well, again, this is symbolic. What does that represent? Well, the face of a man may suggest intelligence. The face of the lion may suggest strength. The ox may suggest service, and the eagle may suggest swiftness. But this was to overwhelm him again with God's greatness and power. Now, what does he see with reference to that? Well, let's go on through verse 14. And at verse 14, um, verse 12, in the likeness of the living creatures, they, he saw there was the appearance of the burning coals of fire and the likeness of torches. And we're coming back to the significance of that just in a moment. Let's go ahead and look at the next section, and then we'll finally get to verse 28 when he comes to the conclusion of all of this vision that he saw. Again, this is in a vision. We'll say more about what's possible in a vision. There was this picture of a chariot. Uh, and he said at verse 16, verse 15 rather, And I looked in the living creatures, behold, a will was on the earth beside each of the living creatures with the four faces. Chapter 10 says it was under them. But now verse 16, the appearance of the wheels in their work was like that of, of Burl. And notice at the end of verse 16, this is mentioned several times in Ezekiel, there was a will within a will. Now, this is a vision. This will within a will means that it could go, as he goes on to describe, it could go this way and that way and that way and this way. It could go in all directions. Well, that's impossible to have a will that's touching the ground, that it rolls this way, but then it also rolls that way as well, a will within a will. But remember, this is a vision. Anything's possible in a vision. You've had dreams, I'm sure, that were strange dreams, and when you wake up, you realize there's no way possible that could have happened, but that happens in a vision. I've told you before, I had a dream once that my horse got out and went to my neighbor's house and got the ladder of my neighbor and climbed up on his roof and stood on his roof. And I went out trying to coax the horse down. And that's when I woke up. And I thought, how silly. That couldn't happen. My neighbor don't even have a letter. That wouldn't work. <laughs> so anything's possible in a vision. So the will within a will is the idea of this chariot. The, the chariot can go in any direction. And so he's overwhelming him with God's omnipresence. God is everywhere. And furthermore, notice at verse 18, their rims were also high and awesome, and the rims were full of eyes, suggesting perhaps God's omniscience. God sees all, God knows all, God is everywhere. And so here is this vision of God's glory. How do I know it's God's glory? That's what he says at verse 28 in just a moment. That's the point that he makes. Then there is the picture of God's throne above all of that, beginning at verse 26, and above the firmament above their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. Now let's get to his conclusion about all of that. It, well, before the conclusion, verse 7, he said, I saw the appearance from his waist up, the color of amber all around, which seems to be the picture of holiness and power. So what is God impressing Ezekiel with? His omnipresence, his omniscience, his power, his holiness, his purity. And furthermore, notice at verse 28, he said, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What was his reaction? Look at verse, verse uh, 28 at the end of the verse. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is now when he's called to be a prophet. So he sees this vision of God's glory in chapter 1. Now let's talk about his call itself starting in chapter 2 and in verse 1. This will carry us through chapter 3 and in verse 37. 
Ezekiel is going to be sent to a rebellious nation. Look at verse 3. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. I'm going to send you to a rebellious nation. That's what I'm calling you to do. Now look at verse 5. He said, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse for their rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. I'm going to send you. They may reject it, but at least they'll know there's been a prophet among them, so I'm calling you to be a prophet. Look at verse 6. Do not be dismayed at their looks. So don't be intimidated. You're going to preach to people who are going to intimidate you or try to intimidate you. Don't be bothered by that at all. You keep preaching and you keep plugging away. Then he was told to eat a scroll. This reminds us again of Revelation chapter 4. He was told to eat a scroll beginning at verse 8. Now he said, Son of man, hear what I have to say to you. Do not rebellious like the rebellious house. Look at verse 9. There was stretched out a hand to me, and behold, a scroll was in it that he spread before me. And now at verse 1 of chapter 3, he said, eat this scroll and speak to the house of Israel. Now that's again a vision. And so he can eat the scroll, not literally going to eat a scroll, but it's as if he's eating the scroll and he's completely consuming the word of the Lord. So the point to be made from that is he's to be saturated with the message, take it within before he can deliver it to someone else. Be overwhelmed and impressed with the greatness of God, consumed with the message, be saturated with the message, and you're ready to go teach other people. That's the point I'm learning from this context. Now, let's go again at chapter 3 and in verse 4. He's instructed to go to Israel even though they will not listen. So notice he says at verse 4, or verse 5, these are not people of unfamiliar speech and, uh, and out of hard language. In other words, I'm not sending you to people who are going to listen, but they may want to understand. Language is not the barrier. The problem is their attitude. The problem is they won't listen. Look at verse 7. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they would not listen to me. I'm sending you to people who will not listen. And don't, verse, five, verse 9, be dismayed at their looks. So I'm instructing you to go to the house of Israel even though they won't listen. Now notice in chapter 3, verse 12 to verse 15. Here's something else that's very practical to us. He sent Ezekiel and he was taken captive. And he said, I went... And I was taken to the captives, verse 15, and at Tel Aviv, and I dwelt by the river Kibar, and I sat where they sat. You might underline that. You want to be an effective person? Then sit where they sat. Understand where they are. Understand where they're coming from. Understand their point of view. He said, I sat where they sat and I observed them for seven days. I sat there for a while and just tried to take it all in. What's it like to be a captive? What's it like to live in Babylonia? What's it like to go through what they're going through? When you understand where they're coming from, you're better equipped to teach them. And so set where they set. Walk in their shoes. That's what you need to do, Ezekiel. That was his call to be a prophet. Now, in verse 16, Ezekiel is charged with being a watchman. So now notice at verse 17, he said, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word from my mouth and give warning from me. Now at verse 18, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, if you give them warning and they don't listen, you spared your own soul. But if you don't warn them, notice now at verse 19, he says, I'll require this, at, or verse 18, I'll require this at your hand. You'll be held responsible because you didn't warn them. So quite often we wonder, what should I share the gospel with someone? Should I try to talk to someone? I, I don't think they'll listen. I know they'll reject it. You go ahead and tell them the gospel so God won't require it at your hand. That's between them and God if they reject that. And that's what God is telling Ezekiel. He said, but, he said, you've delivered your own soul, verse 19. 
All right, now that gets us down to chapter 3 and in verse 27. Now we're ready for chapter 4. Chapters 4 through 7 is the next section now. We've looked at the call to be a prophet. And now he's been called and you're going to go preach to them. They may not listen. In fact, they won't listen, but you delivered yourself. You go preach to them anyway. Now, there's a disobedient nation described. We're talking about judgment on Jerusalem, chapters 4 through 7. Let's see what we find in chapters 4 through 7. Now, here's where we get into some of the symbols here. What we have are four portrayals of Jerusalem's fall. And let's see what they are. First of all, there's a city on a clay tablet, verses 1 through 3. He said, verse 1, chapter 4, take a clay tablet and lay on it, uh, lay it before you and portray a city of Jerusalem and lay siege against it. So in other words, make a model city. Take this clay tablet and make a model city and then you sit back and you lay siege against it. Build you a tower, a siege tower. And you go at trying to lay siege against it and of course people are going to wonder, what in the world is this, this prophet doing? Why, why is he doing that? And it gives him an opportunity. This represents Jerusalem. And I'm laying siege against it just like God's going to lay siege against Jerusalem. Remember the false prophets are saying it's never going to happen. Now interesting at verse, verse 9, put an iron plate between you and it. And uh, what's that suggest? Well, it may suggest that there is a wall between them, that is the city, and God, that, uh, and that wall is their sin. That may suggest that, that that's keeping God from uh, rescuing and saving the city. It's your sin is why this, this, this siege is being laid. But he illustrates the siege with this clay city, a city on a clay tablet. Then the prophet lies on his side. Now let's see what he does. He does this for 430 days, beginning at verse 5. He told him to lay on his side, on his left side, for 390 days. And then on his right side, verse 6, for 40 days, making a total of 430. Now what's the significance of 430? I'm not sure. Some suggest that it may be the 430 years of Egyptian captivity to symbolize Babylonian captivity. But you lay on your side, and he's going to be constrained suggesting here is the pressure and the punishment that's coming upon them. All of this is showing the punishment coming upon the nation because of the sin that they are engaged in. Then he eats polluted bread. So he tells him to do this. Look at verse 9. Make you uh, yourself wheat, barley, beans and, uh, uh, beans, and lentils, and millet, and spelt, etc. And then notice over at verse 12, you're going to cook this using fuel of human waste in their sight. Now you're talking about polluted bread. You take human waste and burn that, and that's how you're going to cook this bread. And so shall the children of Israel eat defiled bread among the Gentiles where I'll drive them. So those that are still left in Jerusalem, they're coming here, and the captives are going to eat polluted bread. They're going to eat defiled. In other words, it's just describing not so much the little bread that they eat, but they're going to be eating from the Babylonians is where they're going to be eating. And because they're going into cap a prophecy of captivity is what it is. Well, uh, Ezekiel said that uh, he, would, he would, had not defiled himself with that, so God said, well, cook it with cow dung instead of human waste, verse 15. Again, polluted bread. But that illustrates what's going to take place with reference to Israel. Then chapter 5 now. We're ready for chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. He is to take a razor and cut his head and his beard and then take the hair that he has and divide it into thirds. And a third of it is to be cast into the fire. I'm reading at verse 2. A third you strike with a sword, and a third you scatter to the wind. Well, obviously that's going to raise some questions, and we'll see an explanation for that here in just a moment. All right, so there's four portrayals of Jerusalem's fall. We're focusing on a disobedient nation. 
Now, chapter 5, verses 5 to 17, Israel's rebellion is the reason for the judgment. Now, look at chapter 5 and verse 6. She has rebelled against my judgment by doing wickedness more than the nations. In other words, Judah is worse than the nations all around. Look at verse 7. Therefore, the Lord says, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations all around you, nor have you done according to my judgments of the nations all around you. In other words, they have gone and been much worse than anyone else. Now, notice at verse 10, he said, You shall eat, uh, eat your sons in the midst, but I will scatter all to the wind. Now, beginning at verse 12, notice he, he begins to explain the judgment to come, like the scattering of the hair. There's going to be a third of you will die by pestilence, third of you will be die by a sword, and a third will be scattered to the wind. So just as it happened with his hair, here's what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. Some are going to die, some are going to die this way, some are going to be scattered to the wind. That's the judgment that indeed is to come. Now notice at verse 13 now. He said, my anger shall, uh, thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon you, and I will be avenged. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. Sounds almost like our key phrase. Hadn't got to that yet, but he will in just a moment. Judgment indeed is coming. Now notice at verse 14, moreover I'll make a waste and a reproach. Uh, and verse 15, you will be a lesson to the other nations. When I bring Judah down, that's going to be a lesson to the other nations all around them. Now let's look at chapters 6 and 7. Here is destruction for a rebellious nation. There's going to be destruction for a rebellious nation. What's going to happen to them? Well, notice, first of all, there's going to be devastation throughout all of their cities. Look at verse 6. We're just hitting the key points. Look at verse 6. In all your dwelling places, the cities will be laid waste and the high places shall be desolate. So what's going to happen to Judah is the chief cities are going to be devastated. All throughout the cities, there's going to be devastation. But there will be, as there always has been, a remnant left. Look at verse 8. I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations where they are scattered through the countries. That's the idea of the scattering to the wind a minute ago that we talked about. So there's going to be a remnant that's going to be left. Now look beginning at verse 11, the idolaters, this is what really drove the problem, the idolaters are going to fall by their idols. In other words, they're going to die beside their idols. So notice that now at verse, verse 12, that um, verse 12, he who is far off shall die by the pestilence. He who is near shall fall by the sword. And then at verse 13, then shall you know that I'm the Lord. There's our phrase. One of some 63 times. We saw that back at verse 7. Then you shall know that I'm the Lord. 63 times that phrase is used. But now at verse 13, his point is, you're going to fall. That is, the idolater is going to be killed and die right there by these idols. Showing the failure of idolatry is what's going to take place. Now notice at chapter 7, we're now into chapter 7. Chapter 7 says the day of destruction has now come. Your time is up. Time's over. Notice he says at verse 2, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord, an end, the end has come. What does it mean the end has come? Your time's up. Destruction has come. No more waiting. And when it comes, look at the end of verse 4, Then shall you know that I'm the Lord. Look at verse 7. Doom has come to you. Verse 8, Now... I, now upon you I will soon pour out my fury. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, is the one who strikes. Verse 9. So, the day of destruction has come, and when it comes, then you'll know that I am the Lord. 
Now what's going to happen at the end of chapter 7? From chapter 7 beginning at verse 10 through basically the end of the chapter, what's going to take place? Well, there are four themes of how God brings this nation down. Let's, just, let's talk about them. First of all, there's going to be social disruption. One of the ways God can bring a nation down is by social disruption. How so? Well, notice what happens at verse 11. Violence has risen up, he said. And notice that none shall be left, that is, none of them shall remain in none of their multitude, none of them, nor shall there be any wailing for them. The time has come, the day draws near. The idea, and then look at verse 13, the buying and selling is over. So here is the social things. Violence has risen up in society. Buying and selling has ceased. And so through this social disruption, God's bringing this nation down. That's one of the tools God can use. Well, there would also be military disruption, beginning at verse 14. Uh, they blow the trumpet and everyone's ready, but no one goes to battle. So they get ready for a battle. They're going to fight their enemy, but nobody's going to fight. There's military disruption. The military's gone. The military's over. They're lacking courage. The sword is outside, he said, verse 15. They're weak and they're feeble, according to verse 16. Now, beginning at verse 19, there's going to be economic destruction. They take their silver and their gold and they throw it in the streets. Why? Because silver and gold is now worthless. Money's gone. Money's, what money they have, it doesn't mean anything anymore. So money being worthless is one of the ways that God brings a nation down. And the fourth thing is political disruption. Now, let's notice at verse 24, this actually begins at verse 23, make a chain, that's a symbol of captivity, make a chain for the land filled with the crimes and blood, therefore I will bring the worst of the Gentiles, that's a description of Babylon, the worst of the Gentiles, the harshest of the Gentiles, I'm going to bring upon you. So another nation is coming in and taking over, so there's a political change. So how does God bring them down? How is God going to bring, well, through social disruption, military disruption, economic disruption, and political disruption? Makes you wonder what God might be doing even in our own nation. Now let's spend the rest of our time in chapters 8 through 11. I know that's a hurried look, but let's go through chapters 8 through 11 about glory departing. We see him being called to be a prophet. God said, I want you to go. I want you to preach. They're not going to listen, but at least you saved yourself. You're doing the work that I told you to do. Here's why you need to go, because they're a disobedient nation. They've rebelled against me. I'm bringing destruction upon them. Their time is up. Now chapters 8 through 10, 8 through 11. The glory departs. Now a little note about what's going on. This is the second of three visions. So what's going on in chapter 8? Notice chapter 8 in verse 3. He said, He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by the lock of my hair and the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So now he's going to be in a vision. Jump ahead to chapter 11 and in verse 24. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into uh, Chaldea to those in captivity, and the vision that I had seen went up from me. So the vision ends. So you might make a note for interpretation later as you study. The vision starts at 8 and 3 and it ends in 11.24. Now here's the key to this vision. What's this vision all about? So whatever we see in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, this is the key. Look at chapter 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. The glory is departing from the temple. And that's the point to be made in 8 through 11. When we get through, whatever you, whatever you come up with, whatever you look at, whatever passage you find, whatever interpretation, that's the key of the point that's being made in 8 through 11. 
So now let's start in chapter 8 and, and see if we can make some sense of the vision of the glory departing. Chapter 8 talks about the abominations in the temple. Now in this vision, he said, I was taken up and I was taken in a vision. Uh, chapter 8. And the point is, Ezekiel is being convinced. McGuigan suggests what, what, needs, what, what God's doing here is that Ezekiel needs to be convinced of the need for this message. And so God takes him in a vision and shows him, here's all the corruption that you're seeing and in the temple. So let's see what happens here. He brought me in the vision, he says. Now drop down to verse 6 of chapter 8. He said, uh, do you see what they're doing? He took me to the temple in the Lord. He's looking around in the temple in the vision. And great abomination that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. In other words, they drove me away. This is my sanctuary. You look and see what's going on at the temple and at the sanctuary. And what you're going to see is they have no respect for me there. You're going to see abominations. Look at verse 9. Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So, verse 10, I went in and I saw every sort of creeping things, abominable beasts, and idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. He said, I went in this vision, looked around, and I saw all kinds of beasts. They're not supposed to be in the temple. I saw idols. They're not supposed to be in the temple. I saw corruption. I saw how bad it really was. What else did you see? Well, he said, then, son of man, verse 12, what have you seen that the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say the Lord does not see. Here's their thinking that we're doing things and God's not paying any attention and God has forsaken his land. What he saw was that there were worshipers of a fallen God. Look at verse 14. So he brought me in the door of the north gate and the Lord's house, and to my dismay women were sitting there weeping for Tamaz. Well, who or what is Tamaz? It was a fertility God. And they're weeping for this God. I saw that in the temple, he said. What else did you see? Look at verse 16. He brought me into the inner court of the house, and there at the door of the temple, between the porch and the altar, about 25 men were there, and had their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. They turned their back on God and turned their, their face toward the sun, and they were worshiping the sun. I saw idols. I saw worshiping of foreign gods. I saw them worshiping the sun, and I saw beasts there. I saw all of this corruption, he said. That's chapter 8. Now chapter 9. Those responsible were identified and slain and the rest were spared. Here's a very practical theme. He said, suddenly six men, I'm reading at verse 2, came up from the direction of the upper gate. And among them was a man in, clothed in linen and had a rider's inkhorn on his side. And they went and stood in by, beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of, of God, of Israel, had gone up from the, uh, from the cherubim. And notice now at verse 4, God gave the instruction, said, Go in the midst of the city and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. So this again is a vision, not literally, but you go in and you mark, put a mark on everyone that is sobbing over the sin of Jerusalem. In other words, mark those who are righteous. Then to the others, he said, go after them and the city and kill and don't spare anyone. Well, the rest of the chapter is basically, that's exactly what he did. Now, here's a lesson I learned from that. The Lord knows those that are his. God's marked his people. And if you're sobbing over the corruption in Israel and you're sobbing and crying over the idolatry in Israel, whatever the case may be, God's put his mark on you and the Lord knows those that are his. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 19. 
and others will be killed. So you wonder, does anyone notice that, that I'm upset about this sin and I'm dealing with that and I'm trying to stand for what's right. God's put his mark on you and he's going to kill everybody else, but you're going to be one of those that are spared. So those that were responsible were identified and slain and the rest were spared. Now chapter 10, this is the key to this vision. This is the vision starts in chapter 8, goes through chapter 11. Here we have the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. So verses 1 through 8, we have the reappearance of the cherubim that we talked about in chapter 1. He mentions that in chapter 2 and verse, uh, chapter 10 and in verse 2. And he said, I spoke to the man in the linen and I said, go, uh, and, he, uh, and he spoke to the man that had the linen and clothed with the linen and said, go in among the wheels that are under the cherubim and, and take, take coals of fire and scatter them basically across Jerusalem. What does that suggest? Jerusalem is going to be burned. The false prophets were saying, no, it never happened. We'll see evidence of that in chapter 11. But Jerusalem is going to be burned. Coals of fire scattered all over the whole city. Then verse 9 through 22, he said, here's the key. Verse 15 says, the cherubim were lifted up. Now verse 18, the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. The glory is gone. God is no longer with his people. God is no longer protecting the temple. God is no longer protecting Judah. God is no longer blessing his people. That's the idea of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. It lifted up and it was gone. Now let's finish with chapter 11. Judgment on the leaders and the remnant spared, just like we saw earlier in chapter 9. And so what happens here? Here's the judgment on the leaders. Verses 1 to 13. He identifies some of the leaders. He said, I was brought and I found... And he identifies the men. And he said in verse 1, verse 2, Son of man, these are the men who devised iniquity and gave wicked counsel to the city. Who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Now what's the idea that, we, the, that the city is the cauldron and we are the meat? We're well protected as the meat is protected from the fire. You put the meat in the cauldron or the, the pot and the fire is beneath and the meat is protected from the fire. And so this is where the false prophets are coming in. God's, God's not going to let this city fall. God's never going to let that happen. I know better than that. That's never going to happen. So here's what he says. Look at verse 10, verse 9. I will bring you out of the midst and deliver you into the hands of the strangers and execute judgments on you. Then, verse 10, you shall know that I am the Lord. The city is not your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst. I will judge you at the borders of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord. There's one of those 63 times that's said. So, what's the point? No, the city is not going to be protected. The city is going to fall. Judgment is coming on the leaders. And then finally, he says, the remnant will be spared. The remnant will be spared. Here we have the first promise of restoration in the book. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he says, I will gather these people and assemble you from the countries where you are scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. That's the first promise of restoration. We see more of that in chapters 40 to 48. That's the first promise of that in the book of Ezekiel. So then in verses 22 to 25, we have the glory departing. So notice what he says, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst. I'm reading at verse 23, the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side. God's glory is gone from Judah. God's glory is gone from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to fall. God's done. God's finished with them. And that's what we learn. Now, there's much to be learned from this, but here's three things and we'll suggest in passing. And then the lesson is yours. We must warn others even if they don't listen. If you're assured no one's going to listen to you, share the gospel with them anyway. We must warn others even if they don't listen. The disobedient were warned and they were punished. 
But here's one of the most comforting things I learned from the book of Ezekiel and all the prophets for that matter. There always has been and there always will be a remnant. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. That The numbers may get smaller. There might not be a church in Bedford County in the future. There may not be one in Tennessee. There might not even be one in the U.S. in the future. I don't know. But somewhere there will be a remnant. There always has been. There always will be a remnant. God has always promised a remnant. There will be a small portion left of God's people that will last until the day of the end. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?